Well, men, I think we'll get rolling here, if that's okay. Even if it isn't okay, we're going to get rolling. So it's good to see you all. We're going to start the book of Philippians, a New Testament book, one of the uh, 13 letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. Um, kind of this, I don't have a room here, but... If you take a look at the uh, note packet uh, that we've given you, there's a cover, but then there is the outline of uh, the book as I see it, and it just neatly divides around the four chapters of the book. And um, I thought I would make a variety of introductory comments that I think are always helpful. So that's the outline which I follow, and the notes reflect that. But the next page is uh, what I want to spend some time on. Um, by way of introduction, okay? Now, in your, I think everybody should have that page, looks like you do. Um, I just want to make sure you know where this little city is, okay? The city of Philippi. And then I want to go to the book of Acts for just a minute. I hope you can make this out. I hope if you printed it out or the copy that we made indicates where it is. You need to kind of orient your thinking, and I think it's important for us to do this. The church at Philippi is the first church that Paul planted in his second missionary journey. His first missionary journey had been over in this part. uh, It was called at that time Anatolia. We would call it Turkey. His second missionary journey, he went and visited those same churches and was called over to Philippi. So he had to cross into Europe. This is an area that was called Macedonia. It was named Philippi, Philippi after... Philip of Macedon, do any of you know who his son was? Alexander. Alexander the Great. So this is a very important city. And it has an enormously significant heritage to it. And so in, this, this isn't an original statement from me. Many have said this. But in Philippi, the gospel invades Europe. That's kind of a creative way to think about it. But it's, it becomes like an extremely important city. It was a Roman military colony. Uh, now, there are a lot of reasons why that was the case, but it was a Roman military co- uh, colony. And if you lived there, you were automatically a citizen of Rome. So one of the things you see in the book of Philippians is Paul talks ab- about our citizenship, our citizenship in God's kingdom and our citizenship in, the, in, in, in heaven. And it it would have meant particularly something to these people because citizenship was very valuable to them. I mean, people in the Roman Empire, to be as this was, a Greek city, a Macedonian city, you're not automatically citizens. But because of its location and all Rome had done uh, to it, it was a very important military colony. So that was valuable to to those people. Paul's going to make much of that. So... As you can see, at least I'm hoping you know the geography, the rest of this is Greece, and then over here is Italy, where Rome is, the imperial capital of the empire. And over, way over on your, the right-hand side of your map to the east is the Holy Land, if you will, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, etc. So Philippi is the city that Paul plants, uh, in a city uh, Paul plants this little church. Now what I want to do is I want to go back to Acts chapter 16. Because in Acts chapter 16, you're near the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey, and it explains to us in this passage, verse 6, on through, uh, I really think I'll pick up with verse 11, on through um, verse 20, um, the end of the chapter, verse 40. I want to pick up quickly three things. It tells us in this account of Paul's missionary journey three very important people that come to faith. And it's interesting, one of them is a woman. Let's pick up with verse 11. Now, are you with me? Do you understand what I'm doing? I want to read in the book of Acts the planting of this church by the Apostle Paul. And by the time this little section is over, he's got a key leader, who's going to be the head of his elder board, a key woman who's going to be head of his deacon board, and a young girl who's going to be the beginning of his youth ministry. 
Now, those three sentences were all joke. <laughs> but he's got three really important people. And I don't know how he organized his church. I don't know if he had an elder board, but if he did, the Philippian jailer was the chairman of the board. I don't know if he had a deacon board, but Lydia, an extremely successful uh, businesswoman, would have been head of his deacon board. And then this young gal who was demon-possessed who comes, becomes a convert, she would have headed up the youth ministry. Again, I just made all that up. What was the, uh, the uh, chapter and verse? Uh, in chapter 16 of the book of Acts, verse 11. Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi. All he's doing is telling him how he got from Turkey to Macedonia, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. That's what I just told you, a Roman military colony. And we were staying in the city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer, we sat down and began speaking to a woman who had assembled, a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, that would be over in Turkey, Anatolia, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right, you follow what's happened here. They go outside the walls of the city. This extremely important woman has a, um, a textile business. That's really what it was. And she was taking cloth. She's dyeing the cloth and so on. And it tells us she's a worshiper of God and the Holy Spirit is already opening her heart. And she becomes officially a convert. She and her household are baptized. And Paul and the group, Luke is one of them, stay with her. One convert. Verse 16, And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. <coughs> Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bond servants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out of her at that very moment. But when her masters saw that their hope of profits was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrate, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. And we are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. And the crowd rose together against him. The chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. You can get that picture, can't you? You know what that means. <clears throat> but about midnight, Paul and Silas were complaining and crying out to the Lord, hurling curses at him for placing him in such a desolate place. What, what version do you have? <laughs> <laughs> he went off of That's not <laughs> what it says. Isn't that amazing? Midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to the God, to, to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I don't know how you guys process something like that. That is absolutely astonishing to me. Now, I want to remind you of a couple of things. This is a Roman military colony. This prison would have been a Roman prison. And it tells us that the jailer puts, him, puts them in the inner prison where it's damp, dark, and undeniably rats and cockroaches and all of that stuff are all around them. It, we have to be cold, and it's doubtful that you're talking about any significant provisions of food. They keep them alive, but barely. 
Now, my approach would be, uh, all right, Lord, I'm really upset about this. And I'm really concerned that you've abandoned me. And I really don't think you're in control of this. Something slipped onto your line side. I'm crying out to get me out of here. But these guys are praying and singing hymns of praise to God. That's, that's just amazing. That's incredible in the real true sense of that word. Other prisoners are listening. And suddenly, verse 26, there came a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had roused out, had been roused out of sleep and had seen the prisoner's doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Why? Because in a Roman military prison, the head of the prison, if any prisoner escapes, is going to be executed. And he doesn't want that to happen, so he's about ready to fall on his sword, commit suicide. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do yourself no harm. We are all here. Now, if an earthquake occurred and broke open all the doors and broke off the chain, what would you do? I would get out of there as quickly as I could. For reasons that aren't clear, Paul and Silas are in there still singing and praising to the Lord. Hey, we're still here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. After he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together who, who, uh, with all who were in his house. And they took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house. This is the jailer bringing Paul and Silas into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Why does that jailer say in verse 30, what must they do to be saved? They wanted what Paul had, Silas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He the adverse situation there, and you know... For them to be praying and singing songs, be happy. Mm-hmm. That just was unusual. Mm-hmm. It stuck out to them. It's, it's, it's inexplicable. Mm-hmm. And in addition, um, what he is seeing, the prison uh, shaken by this earthquake, the doors open and so on, he is, he is coming to the conclusion there's something supernatural going on here. There is no natural explanation for this. And so he's reaching the conclusion, perhaps, of what he heard them singing or whatever. Okay, what must I do? And, of course, uh, Paul very clearly said, you believe in the Lord Jesus. And this man. So now he's going to be chairman of the elder board. Because he's an experienced leader. He's now committed to the Lord. I'm just making that up. But, so it's, it's, it's an amazing thing in this church that Paul is about to plant in Philippi. He really keys in on three really important city people in the city. The wealth, one of the wealthiest men in East Asia, not East Asia, West Asia, excuse me, Lydia. A woman who was, we're assuming she's young, she's, she's perhaps um, been brought into this relationship with these men, Perhaps she's a prostitute who also is demon-possessed, but they're using her to get a lot of money. And Paul casts out the demon, and she's freed. And because of that, her owners cause all this trouble. And do you notice they play the anti-Semitic card? They're Jews, and they don't have any place in what Rome stands for. And the crowds go along with them, and they end up in prison. And then the Roman jailer, the prisoner uh, captain, uh, comes to faith. And you just get the sense as you read a passage like this, God's got this all under control. This isn't randomly happening. It's kind of an amazing uh, thing. Wouldn't the uh, guard also perhaps wanting to be saved because he knows that with the prisoners being released, he's going to be a dead man anyhow? That, well, that could be. I mean, it, um, he's realizing the predicament that he's in. But I, I, I don't think, and I, I don't think you mean that by your question, but I don't think Paul is looking at this as kind of the end justifies the means. 
I want to preserve my life, so I'll just accept this Christ. But it, it could have been a part of it. I mean, he is in a very precarious situation. Um, but because the prisoners did not run away, he's probably going to be okay. They didn't run out of the prison. And it wasn't just the two prisoners. Pre- presumably. 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 That's right. So it's kind of an amazing thing. And he's just saying there is no natural explanation for this. And the case is built um, in his life. There's something going on here. I want to experience the salvation that you guys are representing. Uh, I've heard a commentary about the jailer that, um, because you mentioned kind of backs this up on what must I do to be saved sees the supernatural stuff happening. Yep. Paul and Silas yep. are in favor here. And um, because the jailer himself, putting him in the inner cell and putting them in the stocks was, I read the commentary that that was his decision to do that. That's correct. That, he, that it was his discretion to torture That's <laughs> correct. people. And he decided that these two should be tortured. That's correct. That's so exactly correct. Kind of a, a parallel to, you know, the depth of our sin and then the need for salvation. And he understood yeah. at that point that he needed that salvation. Yeah. And again, I, all of this for this jailer, uh, who is, you know, he's Roman, he's used to the to uh, using power and his authority to get what he wants, if it's punishing or whatever. And none of those categories fit with Paul and Silas. It doesn't make sense what's happening. There's got to be a supernatural explanation to this. And I want to know more about this God whom you're preaching. What must I do to be saved? That's what you're preaching. And he tells him that. And it's just, it's an amazing thing because the, 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 the content of verse 31 is so simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you should be saved. And that's exactly what he does. So do you have to believe in the deity and humanity of Christ? Do you have to believe in God as Trinity? Do you have to have a full orb theology all worked out, have all questions answered? No, that comes. But it's the simple statement of belief in who he is and what he did. And it's, uh, it's just it, the simplicity of this narrative is so profound. And you have three key people in the city that are now in the kingdom. In the case of Lydia and the jailer, can you talk about how should we understand when an individual and their household, how are we to understand that? Um, In both cases, um, what I think we are to assume is that the household, and it doesn't tell us who they are, I mean, I'm assuming with the jailer, it's his wife and his children. Usually it's oikos in Greek. Usually that's what that means. It's your family. Uh, it could also include, uh, although that is, you just, we just don't have enough information, but it can include the domestic servants of the house. But it doesn't have to. We just don't have enough information. So, so that's who it is. Secondly, is because of the response, it, it isn't, it, it seems correct to say, just because the jailer responds in faith, therefore everybody else is covered by that. Each person has to make that individual decision, and presumably that's what happens. Now, whether, whether it happens instantly, or whether it is Luke's observation that this is what will happen, and the same with Lydia, Presumably, it would have involved her husband and, and her children and perhaps her domestic servants. What I think is interesting but hard to understand is if these moments of salvation come immediately for this whole household, which might include children, but in Lydia's case, not only does her household come to faith, but they're baptized, which mm-hmm. then seems to be a confirmation on that salvation. And that's just mm-hmm. hard to understand that even though a moment where supernatural things occurred, how would all these people all come to saving faith? Obviously, the Lord would do that. But but with her, with Lydia, in verse 14, we have a very important piece of information. She is already a worshiper of God. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that mean, a worshiper of God? There are two possibilities. Um, One is that... um, this happens all over the Mediterranean world in the first century. 
there were many Gentiles who had come into a synagogue. They're called a God-fearer in the book of Acts, uh, or they're called a proselyte. And they have, in effect, converted to Judaism. And they're hearing the truth about who God is from the Old Testament and so on. And then Paul comes along, and it's sometimes and he reasons with them from the Scriptures. What's he doing? He's showing how all the Old Testament texts point to Jesus and say, oh, lights go on, and I'm going to put my faith in him. I think that's probably what it is with Lydia, because she is already a worshiper of God. And so, presumably, her family, again, whatever all that involves in terms of who and how many, are involved in that too. And it's like this aha moment. It all comes together when hear what Paul is teaching, because they're down near the river outside the gate of the city, and they're hearing him proclaim and teach and so on, and they respond. She responds, and presumably others with her. So it's it so often happens in narrative accounts in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. We do not get all the information. We get a synopsis of information. But what you always have to do is be careful you don't take logical leaps that then contradict other parts of the scripture. Uh, I don't know if you know what I mean. In other words, a person comes to faith in Christ individually, not because your parents do. God has no grandchildren. Every person has to come to terms with the claims of Jesus Christ. And they either accept them or they reject them. So if you're following what I'm saying, whatever is going on in these two families, there is the individual response to the message that explains their salvation. Woody. Jim, can you uh, uh, repeat uh, the book of Acts and the verses that you were going to I'm in chapter 16 of the book of Acts. I began in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. I think for now, um, I, I'm not going to read any more of that passage in Acts. I, I wanted you to just get that little bit of, a, of uh, an introduction to how that church is planted in Philippi. You, you heard, too, that it is a key Roman colony and, and, and so on. Okay, are there any questions about that? In your notes, uh, number three there, the three examples of those who came to faith. We already covered that. It's Lydia. It's the slave girl who's demon-possessed, and it's the, the, the jailer. Now, one of the things that we'll see as we get started, you see it right away at the beginning of the, the book, Paul had a very, very special relationship with the Philippian uh, people. They had aided him financially. He's going to refer to that a number of times. Um, they sent their key pastor to visit him. Where is Paul when he's writing this letter? Any of you know? In prison. He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. This is AD 61, 62. He's this first imprisonment of Paul. And this is one of the prison epistles. Roman, uh, excuse me, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon are the four prison epistles. So he's in prison. And the Philippians sent one of their, their pastors to visit him. And thirdly, and finally, uh, Paul is planning to go visit them when he's released from prison because that pastor is very, very sick. So Paul has a very special relationship with this, uh, with this church. Over on that next page, real quickly, the author is indisputably Paul. I, I, don't, I don't think there's any debate over that, although a handful do. And as I said here in number uh, C, Paul writing the place and the date of writing. He's in Rome. Uh, it's, his, it's his first imprisonment. I'll make, make three, three real quick comments about that. Uh, it's just, if you want to go over it, that's great. If you want me to, to quickly uh, pass over it, I'll do that too. But just one or two quick thoughts about his imprisonment in Rome. He, this is the imprisonment that is referred to in the book of Acts. He had been, because of all that had happened in Jerusalem, he ended up being taken to Rome. Because if you remember in the book of Acts, he said, I appeal to Caesar. And because he's a Roman citizen, he has that right. That's one of his rights of citizenship. And so he gets to, he gets to Rome. 
Second comment about this, Paul is in prison in Rome for two years. And in prison in Rome for these two years, he writes these letters. And I already told you, there are four of them he writes. Philippians is one of those four. If you want, it's Colossians, and it's Ephesians, and it's Philemon. They're the other three that make up the four. Thirdly, now, this is my opinion, but I, I, can, I think I can, can, uh, can validate it. But I think Paul is released from prison. And then continues ministry again and is rearrested in AD 68, and that's when he's executed. That's not terribly important to our study of the book of Philippians, but he's in Rome. He got there because he asked for his due process rights as a Roman citizen. You're making a charge against me, it's false. I appeal to Caesar, I want a case before Caesar. And that meant the Sanhedrin and those Jewish officials in, 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 in Jerusalem and Caesarea that brought the charges against him, they would have to come to Rome to present their case. Most scholars believe they never did that. And if they never meant to Rome to make the case, Paul would have been released after two years because you were held for two years. And if your accusers do not come for the trial before Caesar, you're released. And I think that's what happened to Paul. Now, I just added some things. It's free of charge, just added something about the Roman imprisonment. But I think it's kind of a neat, important thing to do. Now we're ready to start Philippians. John. Whenever he was in prison, was it always in Rome? Is this his first time? He, there is some evidence that he was in prison for a short time in Caesarea, Caesarea. which is along the coast in Israel. But his major imprisonments were in Rome. First imprisonment and the second imprisonment, which is the second one is which ends up with him being executed. My question may not be important to the study either, but was this written at the time he was in prison that you made reference the first to time. in Acts? Mm-hmm. So that would have been his his, his first imprisonment. It's recorded it's in the book of Acts, the end of the book of Acts, 27 and 28. And that's when he wrote, wrote That's when he wrote this letter, correct. Mm-hmm. The year is about AD 61, late 61, early 62. All right, let's dig into the book. You ready? If you're following your notes, we're at the bottom, or actually we're at the top now, page 5. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from our God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's talk about some of these things. Who is Timothy? Uh, that was not a rhetorical question. No. This is called class participation. Who's Timothy? Does anybody know who's Timothy? He's a student of Paul. And in student essence, of Paul. A child in some ways, correct? And what was the last part? In essence, a godchild. He's been entrusted well, from yeah. Eunice. And- yeah, I mean, he... Uh, he he is like a spiritual child, if you will, of, of Paul. He's a disciple of Paul. Now, he is not in prison with Paul. Here's a big word. He's Paul's amenuensis. Isn't that a great word? Restate it. His secretary. <laughs> Paul, this, is, this was very typical in the ancient world, and Paul was... Was was he followed that similar procedure? He dictated the letter. Now, when Paul's in prison the first time, this one that we're talking about, he's under house arrest. He has a degree, and that's really limited, but a degree of freedom. He's still chained to a Roman soldier, but he has a degree. He can get visitors. He can read his books, his um, Old Testament, and other things. He has a degree of freedom. So Timothy is visiting him. Timothy's with him. And he takes the letter, takes the dictation. How does he describe himself and Timothy? I'm reading from the New American Standard. They translate it bond servants. It's doulos in Greek. You could translate it slaves. A bond servant of Christ. That's right, it's not they forced. Were, they chose 
like they owed something. Uh, explain what you I, explain what you mean by that. I, I don't want to say yes to it without making. You know, I've heard it explained as you owe money, uh-huh. or you want to owe money, or you borrow money as bond as a debt, and so they feel indebted to Christ for what He did. For okay. Them. So okay. they feel obligated to do. They feel called basically to do this. I, I, everything you said, I, I like. Uh, I like it. I think you're correct. The idea. That's why it's sometimes, as it is in my translation, translate bond servant, because um, better than slavery. Because when you use slavery in America, you immediately think of slavery in the American South before the Civil War. Chattel, racial slavery, chattel's property. That's not slavery in the ancient world. It was not unusual, particularly if you were in more of the lower end of the economic scale, it would have been not unusual in your lifetime to be in and out of slavery five or six times. Often had to do with debt, often had to do with certain obligations you owed. Uh, if I use the phrase indentured servitude, you know what I mean by that? You would, you would, you would um, maybe do something for someone for six or year, years or seven years, and the result was payment for certain things, or that could be actually the payment of a debt. I owe you $150. I don't have that, and I'm never going to get that, but I'll work it off. And you become like, you don't get paid for it. All you get is food and, and, and drink from your, from your uh, master, so to speak, but you're working off the debt. So Paul is saying, and, 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 and you're absolutely right on Timothy and I have an obligation to Jesus Christ. And we will fulfill that obligation for the rest of our lives. We're bond servants to him. We're tied to him. And it isn't because they're forced to. It's because they want to. It's a, it's a great thought. It's a great word. Now notice this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus. You can tell you're getting old when you get up out of the chair... Your right knee aches a little bit. Awful. This is used 217 times in the New Testament. If it's used that many times, that's pretty important. I want you to think of it this way. The phrase, in Christ Jesus, this many times in the New Testament, describes, as a phrase, describes your position, describes who you are. It's a place of safety. It's a place of security. It's a place of blessing. And on and on and on and on. Someone has itemized out the 58 blessings a five. You can't read it, but that's a five. The 58 blessings of being in Christ Jesus. 58. So when Paul says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, he's addressing those who have made a decision of faith, and this is the result of that decision of faith. They're now in that circle of blessing, of safety, of security, of the 58 denominated blessings that come as a result of faith in Christ. That's a pretty important statement. That's an important phrase. And almost all of those 217 times the Apostle Paul writes it. That was valuable to him because he had been a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He had persecuted the church. He detested Jesus Christ. But Jesus smashed into his life on the Damascus Road and changed him forever. And he went from a rebellious state, detesting Christ, to now a bondservant of Christ. And all who are in Christ Jesus, he says, experience those blessings. And they're the saints in Christ Jesus. Oh, by the way, those who are in Philippi. So which is more important, being in Christ Jesus or being in Philippi? I mean, it's important in their Philippi. 
That's whom he's addressing, and that's where they live. But what's much more important is that they're in Christ Jesus. If you've made a decision of faith, you're in that same circle. And the 58 blessings that denominate the characteristics of being in Christ Jesus characterize you. I know we... I've never, I've never heard that before, about 58 blessings, and I suppose they're in there randomly, and there's not a list. I have a list. I do. Would you like me to? Would you like me to give you the list? All right. Uh, somebody remind me of that because at my age I forget things. Remind me of that, and I'll bring copies next week. Okay. Just remind me of that. And it's it's an it's an exciting thing. I mean, it's just it's the amazing result of God's grace in our life. And another way of saying it, this is who we are. Who are we in Christ? Here it is. And so I just, I want you to see, Paul doesn't just randomly choose words. He's saying something of significance when he characterizes them, saints in Christ Jesus, who happened to reside in Philippi. All All right? We're still not done with the first verse. Including the overseers and deacons. Who are they? Okay, obviously you didn't hear that question. <laughs> Including the overseers and deacons. Who are they? I assume that's the leadership of that church. The leaders of the church. The leaders of the church. And notice it's plural leadership. It's the plurality of leadership. Now, you know, in the 21st century, we'd call this the board. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure. We just don't know exactly how they organized um, their church, local churches in the first century. But you see, this is early. This is AD 61. This is less than 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father. You already have an organized expression of biblical Christianity, i.e. a church. The church in the New Testament is both an organism, the living body of Christ, and an organization. And Paul, and he says, that the overseers and deacons, this is an organized church. I have no idea what his membership, I have no idea how many, but it's an organized church. And it's got spiritual leadership who are accountable to the Lord. And so he's just saying, and I want to make sure you understand I'm addressing it to all the saints in Christ Jesus, but also to the leadership. And I, it, there's so much you could do with that phrase, overseas and deacons, but we're, we're not going to go any further, further with that. But it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting comment that you think less than 30 years after Jesus went back to the Father, you have an organized church with spiritual leadership in a very pagan city, a key Roman colony. You say, oh my goodness, this is evidence that the gospel is really spreading. It's penetrating some of the most significant parts of the eastern Mediterranean, the Roman Empire. And the book of Acts and other epistles just keep showing us how further west the gospel continues to spread. And I know we don't get excited about biblical truth in this class, but you know, just hide it, say amen. All right. All right. Yeah. I, I, Quick question. Uh, when we were studying Romans, he said that in Rome they had kind of house churches. Correct. Five of them. What, what do we think this church looks like? It, it, has, to be, it has to be the same thing, Andrew. Uh, there are no, what you and I would think of as a building, a geographical location of the church. You do not have buildings like that to the 300s with Constantine. Uh, the house church phenomenon is the norm. Because you're still, you're, you're, I mean, when I say you, I mean when you study material like this, you have to remember they're still in a very hostile environment. The Roman Empire is not embracing Christianity. The political leaders aren't embracing Christianity. As a matter of fact, as you know from just the book of Acts, the number of persecutions, there's just a lot, a lot of local hostility to it, and you saw that in Philippi. What, what did the, the, the guys who employed this young girl do? They lose their source of income. They organize the crowd to get a riot and force the leadership of this Roman colony to put these guys in jail. So it's a hostile environment, but in that, unless they become very wealthy where they can rent a hall, which some did, these are house churches, and they, they connect with one another, but for practical reasons, they meet in people's houses. So the conclusion is you're not talking about 
you know, 50,000 people. You're talking probably a few hundred people. But still, that's significant. It's a significant presence that will do nothing but grow. Uh, and the same thing happens throughout the book of Acts, uh, these key cities. Paul's a real strategic thinker. He really is. Paul strategically thinks, where's the best place to plant churches? It's not random, it's strategic. And when you read, as we studied a couple years ago, when you read in the book of Romans, Paul had planted all the key churches in the Eastern Mediterranean. What's he want to do now? He wants to go to Spain. He wants to plant key churches in the Western Mediterranean. And I mean, that's, that's strategic thinking. How do I strategize about reaching an area? I'm not going to saturate an area. I'm going to plant key churches, disciple a bunch of elders. They'll take it from here. Jim, the Holy Spirit was present on earth at that time. He's um, always been present, but in this case, he's indwelling people, which yeah, is part of his ministry. Sense, now. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's a companion of Paul. Absolutely. Paul is making these trips, and, mm-hmm. and uh, he's, he's more or less what, coaching and directing and encouraging Paul to plant <clears throat> these churches at specific places. It's not just in his cerebral, it's led. By his I, well, I th- yeah. I mean, I I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Obviously, I don't want to discount that, Fred. Yeah. But at the same time, I mean that that's an application we all can make. As I study the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, and as I study some of these key people in the New Testament, they are strategic thinkers. Yeah. It is important for us to be strategic thinkers, and and if we believe in the sovereignty and providence of God and the presence of the Holy Spirit. God is superintending all of that if we're deeply committed to him. But it's important for us to think strategically. And I think you see that in Paul, and and you see that in a number of these key, you see it in Peter, but you see it in Paul. Uh, And and if I can even, you see it in Jesus. (laughs) I mean, in the sense that, I mean, it's really, when you study the Gospels, just all kinds of questions. He's at the well of Bethesda in, in, in John chapter 5, and he chooses one man to heal. There are several dozen there. Why didn't he heal everybody? I don't know, but he chose one. You see what I'm saying? And so you have this very strategic, I'm going to do one thing, and that one thing is going to have an incredible effect. Well, anyway. So it is that unique combination of God's spirit superintending things, but we are encouraged to think strategically and plan. Verse 2. At this rate, we might get another verse done. My opinion is he did. When he was released uh, in A.D. 64, there is evidence in the early fathers, which is from 100 to 150, there's evidence of Paul being in Spain. It's not biblical. I mean, we don't have any account of it in the scriptures, except in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul is referring to geographical places that he's ministered that have not, there is no relation to the first, second, or third missionary journey recorded in Acts. So it's caused many New Testament scholars, and I, I agree with that, to conclude that one, Paul was released in AD 64 because his accusers didn't come from Jerusalem. And if they don't come to make the charges, you're released. That was a Roman due process and legal practice. And so therefore, what did he do? Well, his desire was to go west. If he's released, why wouldn't he go west? Which is what his plans were. And I think he did. And some of that extra-biblical evidence that I mentioned earlier from the early, very early fathers, plus those place names in the pastoral epistles are called 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, indicate, yeah, that's probably correct. And then in the heights of Nero's persecution in A.D. 68, he was arrested again and then taken to Rome and executed, immediately executed, uh, according to, uh, according to, the, uh, to the, uh, the text. So anyway, that's a bunny trail question, but it's a good bunny trail question. Verse 2, the greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see something here. It's really, again, 
Paul is doing something very, very unique. We have thousands of letters coming out of the ancient world. And as was typical in all letters, you know, you always have a greeting. You know, when you write, we don't write letters anymore, so when you email, you have some kind of a greeting. You say, hi, this is Jim, or you know, whatever. Uh, in, in the ancient world, if you were a Greek, you would write grace to you. I, Paul, so great. The, the Greek for grace is charis. If you were a Jew, you would say to somebody as you uh, greet them or write them a letter, peace to you. What's the Hebrew word for peace? Okay, I heard four of you say it. It's shalom. Okay? So this is the Hebrew greeting. This is the Greek reading. What did Paul do? He combines them. He does something. There is no, there is no, uh, there are no other letters coming out of the ancient world where an individual combines the two greetings. If you're Greek, you say charis. If you're Hebrew, you say shalom. Paul says grace and peace to you. Why does he do that? God always deals with the human race in grace. God's connection to the human race is always based on grace. Common grace, it does not only rain on 774 Cold Creek Circle where I live. It rains on my Buddhist neighbor. Why? Did they merit it? Did they earn it? No. That's God's common grace. He chooses to do that. There is God's specific saving grace, which is what Ephesians 2, 8, 9 talks about. For by grace through faith you're saved. And then there is the sustaining grace of God for the believer after they make the decision of faith. God always deals with the human grace and grace. And the saving grace results in God's peace. So Paul's not only combining the greetings of the ancient world, he is doing something theological. Grace to you. That's how God deals with us. And peace, the result of his grace. To you, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wants you, wants you to think as you read his letters. He chooses every single word carefully. And I, I just love this salutation, this greeting. It's just loaded with so much stuff about who he is, who they are, how you look at them. This phrase, in Christ Jesus, it's a precious thought. Don't forget, somebody remind me to bring that 58 thing. All right. Now, we have the introduction, we have the background material, and it's 23 minutes off. So it's all your fault that we haven't made much progress today. No, I'm just kidding. I really am just kidding. All right, let's, um, let's get into the main body and, and the way it's outlined there in your notes as, as well as how I want to think about this. It's a section of thanksgiving. He wants to edify them. You know what edify means? Build them up. Encourage them. Affirm them. He says, I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Now, I want you to note something there. The word thank, um, it means thanks. <laughs> but the importance of that is the verb tense. It's what we call continuous present. This is an ongoing, continual thanksgiving of Paul to God. Thank you, Lord, for the Philippians. It's a continuous present. It's an ongoing spirit of thankfulness to God for these people. He really loves these people. He really cares about these people. And he's thanking God. I think it's important for you and me to be reminded that one of the dimensions of our praying to God is thankfulness. Did you ever see the little acrostic acts for praying? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, petition, or supplication. 
And that third one is the T, Thanksgiving. It's continuous. Um, my wife has taught me so much in that area. She is constantly thanking the Lord. And when we pray, constantly thanking the Lord for things that I don't even think to thank the Lord for. I'm now thanking the Lord for our flowers. Why? Because that's my wife's. As well as thanking the Lord for our kids and our grandchild who's going to be born the end of December. His name is George, James, Peter, Ekman. Uh, well, anyway. That spirit of thanksgiving. In all my remembrance of you. Let's think about that. What does that mean? Unpack that for me. We already talked about thank. It's continuous present, continuous thanking. But what is that last phrase? In all my remembrance of you. What, what, what does that mean? Unpack that for me. He is a presence of the Lord. Okay. He has, he has a relationship with yeah. God, yeah. Jesus, yeah. and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, just on his mind all the time. Okay. It must have been some good times. Yeah. When does Paul thank shoot a straight hour prayer of thankfulness to the Lord? Every time he thinks about Every time he thinks about them. Every time he thinks about them. Did you ever uh, my wife has a little phrase uh, because my wife's a real prayer warrior and people in our church get to know that. And so they say to her, "Peggy, would you pray for me?" And this is Peggy's response. Because sometimes she she doesn't necessarily want to put this into her. Her prayer list is unbelievable. But So she says, this is her standard response. As the Lord brings your name to my mind, I will pray for you. That's a, that's a good way to say it. She's not lying because, you know, some people, I know, I'm sure you maybe you guys have never been guilty of this. Somebody says, would you pray for me? And, they give to, and then you say, well, sure, I'd be glad to. And then you never do it for the rest of your life. Because you forget it. But Peggy's response is if she doesn't want to incorporate it into her regular prayer list, every time the Lord brings your name to my mind, I will pray for you. Paul is saying, every time I thought about you guys in Philippi, I thank the Lord for you. It's an ongoing, continuous practice of my praying. What is the characteristic or nature of his prayer? Verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Paul's a southerner for you all. That was a joke. Nobody got it, so just forget it. <laughs> Always offering prayer with joy. What does that mean? <clears throat> it's a key word of the book. Joy appears over and over and over again. Some people called this the epistle of joy, a letter of joy. But what is joy? He, the nature of his thanksgiving is always offering prayer with joy. Delighting. I'm sorry? Delighting. De delighting. Mm -hmm. We had talked about a couple of weeks ago the difference between happiness and joy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Joy is, a, Joy is a mindset. It's a mindset. It's an attitude. Um, it's a, a, a deep-seated character trait that um, is not dependent on circumstances. It's not a circumstance-focused. It's a God-focused emotional character trait or emotional aspect of life. Um, Thanksgiving with joy is... Thanking God with joy for the valleys as well as for the peaks. Because life is valleys and peaks. And in my remembrance of the Philippians, there were valleys and there were peaks with joy. Constant, continual joy. Uh, Witty. I, I thought maybe he was thanking the Lord for, for you all, for followers that he was addressing in the letter. What that might be? You mean the, the joy is characterizing the people whom he's praying for? Yeah. The, the ones, that, the ones yeah. that have accepted Jesus Christ. Yeah. He's thanking 
<coughs> he, he has joy that they. He said, "For you all." Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I think you're on to something. I mean, the joy, the joy is the nature and characteristic of his prayer to God with joy, but it is because of you all. Yeah. And it's and that's what I mean. It's you all that you are in Christ and, and all of that, but all of the circumstances and aspects of who you are and what you're doing and what God's doing in your life. It's a it's a holistic, total dimension of his prayer because if it's ongoing, and they come into his mind because Epaphroditus, you'll get across that name a little later on. He's the pastor that is visiting Paul in prison, and while while he's visiting Paul in prison, he gets deathly sick. And Paul is, is he's going to tell them the Philippians about their guy, their pastor, and that's is Paul still joyful? Even though Epaphroditus is almost saying, he's, he's sharing with them, be joyful about that. He's going to tell us a little bit later on, I'm in prison, but be joyful about that. What? Because I'm in prison, more people are out preaching the gospel. I mean, you know, his perspective about things is so different than mine. I'm having a pity party. He's, he's jumping up and down with joy, singing praises to the Lord, and I'm pitying myself. I'm sharing the contrast between me and Paul, which isn't hard for you to figure out. I was thinking too is that I can't even believe it. you know Paul and the rest of the disciples you know as they went out for Christ you know trying to put that into the day who would do that mm. half of them would drop out <laughs> yeah. all, all yeah. of them would drop out yeah yeah, yeah. it's these, these are amazing individuals yeah. in that very early church and that's what the New Testament keeps sharing with us in so many different perspectives the third thing I'd like to do, and I think we can do this, is verse 5. His prayerful, joyous spirit to the Lord, every time the Lord brings their name to his remembrance, is for a reason. In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now that word participation, I, you, there are a variety of translations here, so it depends on what your translation but what's being translated is this word, koinonia. Did you ever hear that? It's kind of a term, it's a Greek term, but a lot of people are familiar with that. It's like shalom in Hebrew. Koinonia. It's, it's a, an intimate fellowship, participation, engagement. These people, these people at Philippi, Acts 16 tells us Paul plants the church there. Strategic location. But they were engaged with Paul for the rest of his ministry. He lit a fire in that little community. And those believers that got involved in that little church, they are behind Paul from day one. And so he says, one of the reasons I'm continuously thankful to the Lord with you and a thanksgiving that's characterized by joy is because you have been koinoniaing with me. In spreading the gospel. This is a key group of believers. And Paul has a very special relationship with that. And I think it's for you and me, you and me, we can be involved in this koinoniaing. I'm taking a Greek word, making it into an English verb. <laughs> But we can be involved in this intimate participation in what God is doing. Lots of different ways. Through praying for people, through giving to certain organizations, ministries, people, through ourselves being actually connected with individual people in ministry, or whatever. We're all koinoniaing, fellowshipping. This isn't just sitting down having a cup of coffee, which is how churches define fellowship. Fellowship is having coffee and donuts between Sunday school and church. That's not, it's a great thing to do. Coffee is God's greatest gift next to Jesus and our wives. <laughs> but that's not koinonia. Koinonia is engaging. Engaging with what God is doing. Directly or indirectly. Praying, giving, on the front line. This little church at Philippi was really significant what Paul was doing. They're koinoniaing with him. So every time the Lord brought his, their names or their, their, their faces or whatever to his mind, he's thanking the Lord for them with great joy. 
Thank you, Lord, for those dear people at Philippi. They've been behind me for day one. I don't know what I would do without them. They are a great gift from you. Thank you for them. That's the spirit of what Paul is saying. Verse 6 is where we pick up next week, Fred. Don't let me forget it. Woody, don't let me forget it. You're the two, you're, you're, you're my two amenuenses. You're my two key people. You keep me on track, okay? We start with verse 6. It's a great verse. It's a great verse. See you next week.